Okay, I want to be uh, totally upfront uh, with you this evening. Uh, with the amount of reading I had time to do this week, um, I didn't have chance to uh, really prepare as much as I would have, have liked to for this evening. Um, so what we've got this evening is an abridged and amended uh, version that someone else was trying to do about George Whitfield's life. So we've got uh, an amended and abridged version of a, a John Piper sermon. Um, he, his is an hour and 25 minutes. Um, I'm attempting to do this in 20. Um, but can I just say that up front? I've never done that before, um, but I don't want you to think that all this is, is original. It's more of a collaboration, really. Uh, between, not that I, well, I'd love to be able to collaborate with John Piper, but... Um, so that's what we've got this evening. And can I, I signpost you to uh, his excellent resources uh, on George Whitfield. If you've got any questions, I can direct you to Lyndon. Uh, and also his wonderful journals, which uh, I know Lyndon would wholeheartedly as well recommend. But let's think about uh, George Whitfield. Uh, the facts about George Whitfield's preaching as an 18th century uh, evangelist are almost so big, they're, they're unbelievable. But according to multiple reports of his contemporaries, they do seem to be true. From his first outdoor sermon, uh, on the uh, 17th of February, 1739, at the age of 24, which he gave on the outskirts of Bristol, uh, until his death 30 years later, on the 30th of September, uh, 1770, in Massachusetts. Uh, his life was almost a daily experience of preaching. He preached virtually every day. Sober estimates so that he spoke about a thousand times every year for 30 years. That included at least 18,000 sermons and 12,000 talks and exhortations. And uh, the daily pace he kept for 30 years meant that many weeks he was actually speaking more than he was sleeping. Henry Venn, uh, vicar of Huddersfield at the time, and knew Whitfield uh, well, uh, wrote this. He said, many weeks he was actually speaking, that's not preparing to speak, speaking for 60 hours. Six zero, not sixteen. That's almost six hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and on slower weeks, uh, over eight hours a day, seven days a week. Sorry, that was on slow weeks. On the heavier weeks, uh, you could do up to eight hours a day. When he needed a break and a bit of a, a rest and recuperation, he would take a trip across the Atlantic to America, or vice versa. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times in his life. Uh, 13 because he died there at the end, he didn't come back, he's buried in America. But the trips across the Atlantic at that point took 8 to 10 weeks. But even then, while he was on the boat, he would preach daily, uh, but less so than when he was on land. One 19th century biographer said this of his life, his whole life may be said to have been one uh, continuous or scarcely interrupted sermon. That's really what his life was. And the messages he preached on land were preached to gatherings, often with thousands of people. Usually in the open air, uh, he did that before Wesley, uh, in the open air with the difficulties of wind and competing noise. Uh, for example, on, uh, in autumn in 1740, uh, for over a month he preached almost every day to crowds of up to 8,000 people. That was when the population of Boston, the largest city in the region, was not much more than that. So virtually everybody in Boston was turning up to hear him. Uh, he recounts that in Philadelphia, he had the same the same year on a Wednesday, he preached uh, twice in the morning to about 6,000 people, 
And in the evening, to near 8,000. They must have more turnout in the evening, I think. Uh, but that's the way it goes in America. But uh, on Thursday, it's told, we're told he spoke to upwards of 10,000. And it was reported at one of these events uh, that he opened his mouth and his words were distinctly heard at Gloucester Point. Uh, but that's a distance of more than two miles uh, down the river, uh, down the Delaware River. So you could be heard preaching two miles away, and there's no microphones uh, in those states. Uh, and there were times when crowds that went to hear him were up to 20,000 or more. And that meant that the physical exertion to project your voice to so many people for so long, each sermon, human sense, was a miracle. Nothing short of incredible that he could do that uh, in front of these crowds of people without any amplification. On top of all uh, the preaching, he was continually travelling in a day when that was done by horse or carriage or ship. He covered the length and breadth of England repeatedly. I tried to find out if he'd come to Otley. I don't think he came ever to Otley, but he did come to Yorkshire. Um, he regularly travelled and spoke throughout Wales. He visited Ireland twice and was almost killed by a mob. Uh, and he got a scar on his forehead, which he kept uh, for the rest of his life. He travelled 14 times to Scotland, America seven times, stopping once in Bermuda for 11 weeks. Not for a holiday, for more preaching. He preached in virtually every major town on the east coast of America. And this was at a time when travelling from Leeds to London, for most people, that would have been a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing. We read about the people who write their accounts, but they're the people who could write and could move around. The estimates are that 80% of the entire population of the American colonies heard Whitfield at least once. 80%. So there's no reason to doubt that he was the instrument of God in the salvation of thousands over in America. And he was better known over there, whereas Wesley was more known over here. He uh, spent so much time uh, in America. So how did all that come about? Well, uh, Whitfield was converted um, when he was about 20 years old. It was the spring of 1735. He was part of the Holy Club at Oxford with John and Charles Wesley. But for them, the pursuit of God was all discipline. We heard a bit about that with, um, with Wesley. But this is what he, he wrote. I always chose the worst sort of food. I fasted twice a week. My clothes were mean. I wore woolen gloves, a patched gown and dirty shoes. I constantly walked out on cold mornings till part of one of my hands was quite black. I could scarce creep upstairs. I was obliged to inform my kind tutor, who immediately sent for a doctor for me. He was really destroying himself, uh, trying to be so disciplined and thinking that was the way to God. But he took a break from school, and uh, there came into his hands a copy of Henry Scoogle, uh, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And this is what he writes in his, in his own words or said. I must bear testimony to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book in my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to that place where Jesus first was revealed to me and gave me the new heart and the new birth. Scoogle says a man may go to church, may say his prayers, receive the sacraments, and yet, my brothers, not be a Christian. How did my heart rise? How did my heart uh, shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself bankrupt? Yet shall I burn that book? Shall I throw it down? 
Shall I put it by, or shall I search into it? I did, and holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. I read a little further, and the cheat was discovered. Ah, says the author, they will know anything of religion. No, it is a vital union with the Son of, Son of God, Christ formed in the heart. But what a way of divine life did break upon my soul. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory, was my soul filled. He came to know Christ in a real way. Even though he'd been to church, he'd done all those things, he came to know Christ. Another time, uh, he says this, Above all, my mind began now to be more opened and enlarged. I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all of the books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat and indeed in drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light and power from above. I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I ever could have acquired from all the writings of men. He was a Bible man uh, and he learnt uh, what he knew from the Bible. But he became uh, a Christian, he set to preaching. Uh, what did Whitfield preach? Uh, unlike so many uh, preachers today, the preaching of the 18th century was quite doctrinally specific, let's say, and, and not vague. So when you read through Whitfield's sermons, when you listen to the words of songs like the one we sang at the beginning, there's a lot of theology in there. You're struck how amazingly doctrinal they are. And Whitfield saw, a few months after his conversion, uh, was the preciousness and power of the doctrines of grace. What was real for him was what we would call Calvinism. Uh, one biographer writes, from first to last he was a Calvinist who believed that God chose him for salvation. Jim Packer wrote of him, Whitfield was entirely free of doctrinal novelties. So in other words, he, he didn't try and come up with his own versions of things, uh, like Wesley we saw a few weeks ago. He just went with what was there. But his guide to read the Bible in the formative days was not John Calvin, but Matthew Henry, who wrote a Bible commentary. And Whitfield said, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught it to me. In fact, he wrote to John Wesley, uh, they discussed this quite a bit, in 1740, I never read anything that Calvin wrote, said Whitfield. And yet, even with those differences between Whitfield and Wesley, uh, they were able to work together for the common cause of the gospel. Uh, one of my favourite stories uh, with them is that uh, apparently George Whitfield was asked whether he expected to see John Wesley in heaven, given their differences over this issue. And uh, his answer was no. I, I don't expect to see uh, John Wesley in heaven, because he'll be so close to the throne, and I'll be so far back that I suspect I will not see him. I just think that's a lovely way to disagree, isn't it? So they did disagree. They wrote to each other, they tried to convince each other, but in the end, they were able to work together still. And Whitfield was open about this. He didn't enjoy these realities quietly. He preached them. So he said to Wesley, I must preach the doctrine of the gospel of Christ. And this I cannot do now without speaking of election. And yet, Whitfield reminds Wesley, and I was in a letter in 1741, though I hold particular election, I offer Jesus freely to every individual soul. Uh, indeed, he preaches a sermon that, that starts uh, very along those lines. 
so this is what he says in, uh, when commenting on John uh, chapter 10. He said, if you belong to Christ, he's speaking of you. When he says, I know my sheep, I know them. What does that mean? Why, he knows their number. He knows their names. He knows every one for whom he died. And if there were one missing for whom Christ died, God the Father would send him down again from heaven to fetch him. But the way he finishes the sermon is this. Come then, come, see what it is to have eternal life. Do not refuse it. Haste, sinner, haste away. May the great, the good shepherd, draw your souls. Oh, if you ever heard his voice before, God grant that you may hear it now. Come, come, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. To him I leave you. So Whitfield, he, he preached for people to be converted. Whitfield did more than preach, though. He was relentless in his devotion to good deeds and his care for the poor, constantly raising funds for orphans and other mercy ministries. One historian wrote, he was, he was doctrinally pure in his insistence that salvation came only through God's grace, but he was nevertheless deeply involved in charitable work, and his year-long tour through America was to raise money for an orphanage in Georgia. He raised more money than any other cleric at his time for philanthropy, which included uh, schools and libraries, uh, almshouses across Europe and America. Benjamin Franklin, with whom he enjoyed a warm friendship, uh, had huge differences in terms of religion, but he wrote this, Whitfield's integrity, disinterested and indefatigable zeal in prosecuting every good work, I have never seen equaled, I shall never see excelled. So the connection between doctrine and the practical duties of love was one of the secrets of Whitfield's power. The masses believed, and rightly believed, that he practised what he preached. That said, I've always said we don't want to do uh, just sort of all the, the good bits and none of the other bits uh, as we've gone through these different figures. We don't want to do what you call a hagiography, where you just find out the good bits. All that didn't make him a perfect person. Whitfield had his blind spots, but it's still right that we honour him for all the good bits. But the most uh, uh, glaring one uh, in his life was his support for the American enslavement of African Americans. Before it was legal to own slaves in Georgia, Whitfield advocated for the legalization uh, of owning slaves. He was doing it so that the orphanage could be built and made more affordable uh, by having that uh, there. In uh, 1752, Georgia became a royal colony. Slavery was now legalized, and Whitfield joined the ranks uh, of those who owned slaves. At that time, though, most of the slaveholders were professing Christians. But in Whitfield's case, things were a bit more complex. It wasn't just one of these slave owners that uh, just uh, like the sort of stereotypical ones that you think. Uh, he, for example, insisted on uh, educating and evangelizing them, which most slave owners would not do. The slave owners knew that education would tend towards equality and undermine the whole system. And evangelism would imply, uh, imply that slaves could become children of God, which would mean there would be brothers and sisters to the owners, which if you think about it would undermine the whole system. See the book of Philemon if you want to know more about that. But ironically, Whitfield did more to bring Christianity to the slave community in Georgia than anybody else. Whitfield wrote letters to newspapers defending the evangelism of slaves, and arguing that to deny them this was to deny that they had souls, which some believers were actually putting out there. Whitfield said he was willing to face the whip of southern planters if they disapproved of his preaching the new birth to slaves. One historian dates the advent of black Christianity in Philadelphia to Whitfield's first preaching tour there. 
He estimates that perhaps a thousand slaves heard Whitfield's sermons in Philadelphia. And what they heard was that they were just as precious to God as other people. From Georgia to North Carolina to Philadelphia, Whitfield sowed the seeds of equality through heartfelt evangelism and education. He was blind in one sense to the contradiction of doing that whilst having slaves, but he did address them as equals alongside uh, non-slaves. He also criticised the treatment of slaves by slave owners. So he wrote, uh, God has a quarrel with you for treating slaves as though they were brutes. If these slaves were to rise up in rebellion, all good men must acknowledge that the judgment would be just. Now you can imagine that did not make him too popular with the slave owners uh, in the area either. But more than any other 18th century figure, Whitfield established the Christian faith in the slave community. So there is another side, the, the greatest preacher there of the 18th century, perhaps in uh, the history of the Christian church, was there were contradictions there. There was sin in his life, which, well, that's what we all have, isn't it? Every human soul uh, has sin apart from Christ. But it just reminds us then, doesn't it? It points us, his imperfection in that, again, just points us to Christ's perfection. Uh, his obedience there, well, it reminds us of Christ going out, doesn't it, to the lost souls uh, and preaching. So let's pray that uh, we would learn the lessons of, of Whitfield. I'll just finish with words uh, from him. Uh, he says, I know no other reason why Jesus has put me into ministry than because I am the chief of sinners and therefore fittest to preach free grace to a world lying in the wicked one. We're sinners too, but we can preach the gospel, can't we, uh, in a world that needs it. So let's pray that we would. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for George Whitfield. Father, thank you for the incredible uh, faithfulness, Father, in preaching the gospel day in, day out, for hours on end. Father, thank you for the way that you used him in the salvation of many. Father, thank you for his clarity uh, on doctrinal matters. And Father, we, we thank you that there will be many who owe that chain of salvation back to somebody uh, that Whitfield spoke to, to the 80% of America that he spoke to during his day. Father, we pray, raise up more um, that we might see your salvation go from coast to coast, uh, Father, from sea to sea, all across the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.